Well, I find it kind of interesting that after preaching four sermons on worship over the summer, that Pastor Mark would give me one more text on worship. The past four times when I've been asked to preach, I've taught on corporate worship or the worship of God's people when we gather each week on Sunday morning. Today we get to explore a story about personal worship. In other words, worship as individual choices and actions in everyday ordinary life. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace is a famous one, and I'm sure that most of our youth in this room know this story very well. So to help us get started today, I'm going to ask them to help us understand some of the basics of the story. So kids and youth ages 18 and on down, I'm going to ask you a couple questions and I need you just to shout out the answer, okay? Don't be shy, okay? So first, we need to get our characters straight right? Who's in the story? So first of all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what nation did they come from? Don't be shy. Israel. Israel. Thank you, Ron. (laughs) Appreciate that. I thought you were a lot younger than you look. So So how did, how did these, these three men get to Babylon? Come on, youth. I know you guys know this. How'd they get there? You guys are being shy. You're not shy on Wednesday nights. Come on now. A camel. Thank you. They came because they were exiled. Remember what happened? Nebuchadnezzar and his army came and took over. Now, were these three guys friends of Daniel's? Yes or no? They were. That's right. And we learned just last week or two weeks ago that they were part of Daniel there serving in the court. So they were selected officials now that were tasked with helping to govern this, ma- this massive empire. All right, so that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Help me with Nebuchadnezzar. So what position of power is Nebuchadnezzar in? What's his role? He's a king. king. Thank you. King of Babylon. Does he think that he's big stuff? Yes or no? He does. And how do we know that? Yeah. You guys know anybody who makes an idol and makes everybody else worship it? Last week, we learned that he threatened to kill all the wisest men because they couldn't tell him what he had dreamed. And then, in the chapters to come after this, we're going to see that God had to humble him He had to make him eat grass like a cow until he acknowledged that God alone appoints kings. So this guy has a pride problem. All right, next characters are the tattletales. The ones who go to Nebuchadnezzar and tell on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do we know much about them? Not really. But they do have an important role to play in the story, right? Okay, The last character in our story is the most important one, and that is God himself. And I want to ask you, youth, again, where does he show up in the story? In the furnace with the the three. Thank you. All right. Well, that is, um, we're going to try to answer that question. Is Is this God in the fire? Thank you all for helping me answer those questions 
And can the adults just give the kids a hand for their participation? Okay, so I want to walk now through the story of Daniel and see how he chose to lay, sorry, this story, not the story of Daniel, but this chapter and see how Daniel laid it out for us. So if you have our Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to start here working through verses 1 through 7. In these verses, we're introduced to the central conflict that's happening. Nebuchadnezzar has taken it upon himself to erect a giant statue, and he insists that all of his governing officials come and bow down to it to show their loyalty to him. So the first question that pops into our heads is, who was the image, or what was the image that he made? Is this an image? Is it a representation of himself, King Nebuchadnezzar? Or is it an, an image of a god, such as Marduk, who is the chief god of the Assyrians? Well, we really don't know for sure, and scholars disagree about it. What we do know is that Nebuchadnezzar is forcing all of his governing officials to bow down to it as an act of worship. It's meant to be a sign that they are also serving the gods that Nebuchadnezzar worships. So in essence, we can be sure that minimally here, Nebuchadnezzar is forcing everyone to worship the gods that he worships. And he's threatening them that if they don't, they're going to be incinerated. Pretty nice guy, huh? Very tolerant, open-minded, enlightened. So let's pause here and ask a question. What would allow a person to get to the point that they think they can force everyone else to worship their gods? What's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart that would cause him to act this way? The answer is pride. We've already talked about this briefly. Perhaps he thought to himself, I am the most powerful man in the world. And he would actually be right. We find that out in chapter 5, verse 19 of Daniel. Maybe he thought, I take orders from no one. I demand absolute, absolute loyalty to my every wish. And if I don't get what I want from my people, I have the right to snuff them out and start over. This makes me wonder if Nebuchadnezzar is not just trying to get everyone to worship his gods. It sure seems to me that he's also trying to get them to see how great he is and to worship him. So even if this image that he constructed is not an image of himself, I think he's still hopelessly infatuated with himself and seeking others to worship him and his power. Now let's try to paint the scene in our minds First, we need to know that this image is roughly nine stories tall. That's almost as tall as St. Michael's Hospital in Silverdale, which is 10 stories tall. And probably most of us have driven by that. You can see it from a long way off, right? So imagine all these officials coming toward this tall statue, getting closer and closer. How intimidating that would be to see this huge statue made of gold. I mean, the height of of the statue is threatening, And the amount of gold that it would have taken to overlay the structure underneath it is staggering. And then the king is going to tell you, bow down to this or die. So Nebuchadnezzar has just made it really, really hard on anyone who doesn't want to worship his gods or him, right? Well, that's a problem for these Israelites, for these Hebrews. Remember what God told his people not to do? Exodus 20, 20, chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And this commandment gets repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And Israel's failure to obey it is one of the reasons they were deported to Babylon in the first place. So now these three young men who have been recently promoted to important governing positions in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom have a choice. And I don't think that they were given much time to think about it. They're told what to do, and then the music starts playing, and all around them, these gathered officials begin to bow down. But they remain standing. Can you imagine how awkward that must have felt, especially in light of the king's threat? And this is probably a fairly large crowd, so Nebuchadnezzar is not able to see everyone. And here we have the entrance of the tattletales who come and they seem to be very excited to share with King Nebuchadnezzar that these three Hebrews have disobeyed him. Look with me at verse 12. This is what they said. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice there are three accusations. Despite the fact that they are ruling on behalf of the king, they don't pay attention to him, they don't serve his gods, and they don't worship the golden image. Well, how does a person like Nebuchadnezzar respond to not being listened to? Does he attempt to carefully listen and find out what's keeping these three Hebrews from complying? No. The text says that he responds with rage and he demands to see these men. Now he does, however, offer them a second chance to comply. Perhaps he's reluctant to throw away such talent. After all, he has invested a lot in their education. Let's look at what he says, starting in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Notice with me that his his speech here ends with a threat. And after that is a theological statement. He said that there is no God out there who can stop him if he decides that these three men need to die in the furnace. No God can stop him. Now this actually heightens the conflict, especially because in the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God's greatness, he acknowledges God's greatness in all, and that he can reveal mysteries to Daniel. Remember chapter 2, verse 47? Nebuchadnezzar had told Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the God of the Israelites and said he was Lord of kings, God of gods. Here now he's taking a step backward and claiming to be stronger than the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He's saying that no God is strong enough to intervene to save them. What a boast. He's putting himself at the same level or even above the level of the gods. And it appears that he's even specifically challenging Israel's God. Remember what we said about pride? Well, here it is on display for all to see. Can you imagine for a minute being in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes? It reminds me of David and Goliath. Here is this giant of a king, the most powerful king Babylon ever has, staring down at them and threatening them with their lives. Now David, when he faced Goliath, didn't flinch at Goliath's threats. He knew that God did not approve of Goliath's boasting about him, against him, and he knew that God would give him the victory. So I wonder if David's story flashed across the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at this moment. Who knows? We're not told. But let's look together at how they respond. Verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Well, first, let's take a look at what they say about God. In the ESV translation that I just read, it says, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. That's in verse 17. The NIV translation says, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Now one commentary that I read on this passage actually argued that there's a better translation of the original language. So he argues that it should be translated that God may rescue or he may rescue In other words, this scholar believes that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God, whom we serve, may rescue us. So listen to his comments on this verse. Although no doubt existed in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about the ability of their God to deliver them, they humbly accepted the fact that God does not always choose to intervene miraculously in human circumstances, even on behalf of his servants. The following verse shows that the Hebrews understood death to be a possibility. In other words, they know that God can save them from Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, but they have no promise that he will do so in this situation. After all, God did not save the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah from Nebuchadnezzar's army. So they have no guarantee that God is going to intervene here. How many of God's prophets were killed and tortured by evil rulers before we ever get to this story in the Old Testament? If these three men know their Bibles, and it appears that they do, they know that standing up against a ruler and obeying their God doesn't necessarily necessarily mean that they're not going to pay with their lives. And isn't isn't this the same true for us today? How many Christian martyrs have died at the hands of evil rulers. Just because followers of Christ do what is right doesn't mean there's any guarantee that their earthly lives will be spared. Notice, however, that they have actually challenged the king's boastful assertion. He has claimed that no God can stop him, and they tell him, no, our God actually can save us from your hand. And then they make this remarkable statement in verse 18. But if not, 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Isn't that bold? They aren't simply saying, no. They're saying, you're wrong. Our God can save, can stop you. And even if he chooses not to, we're still going to stick with him and not worship your image. We're not going to bow down to your God or to you, no matter what the consequences. Now, if you remember back with me to my last sermon on worship, I said that part of what makes worship genuine in our hearts is when our hearts express loyalty and devotion to God. In other words, our hearts attach themselves to God and commit to follow and obey him no matter what. So these three Jews are making a beautiful declaration of worship before this evil king. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, commented on this verse that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego indicate that it will not be a matter of God's inability, but rather his sovereign will if they do perish. You see, they're submitting to God's will here and trusting him with the outcome. They see Nebuchadnezzar as powerless before their God to enforce his threat. Yet they know that Yahweh may choose to allow Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his threat. Either way, they are committed to the end. So one commentator concludes, Thus the Hebrews believed that their God could, but not necessarily that he would, spare their lives. Here is a pertinent lesson for believers today. Does God have all power? Yes. Is God able to deliver believers from all problems and trials? Yes. But does God deliver believers from all trials? No. God may allow trials to come into the lives of his people to build character or for a number of other reasons. The purpose for trials may not always be understood, but God simply asks that his children trust him even when it is not easy. Does that remind you of the song that Rhonda brought to us this morning? Trusting God when you don't know if he's going to do what you want him to do or what you think he needs to do to help you? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not simply trusting God with their fate. They were also convinced that their God had something better for them beyond the grave. We know this because of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 tells us that when God called Abraham to leave his city and follow him, Abraham left knowing or being confident that God was going to lead him to a better city. Hebrews then goes on to describe how Abraham's descendants also walked in the same confidence that Abraham had. They knew God promised them a better country after this life, and they died before getting to see it. Then Hebrews makes a specific reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hebrews 11.32 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel, right? And the next phrase is, quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are listed here alongside other famous Old Testament saints as ones that were convinced that God had something better for them after this life. 
So these three men knew that dying in a fiery furnace, as awful as that would be, would not be the end for them. They knew a better life awaited for them after the grave. And this gave them courage to be willing to experience a fiery grave, if necessary, to be faithful to God. As the very next verse in Hebrews says of their hope. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, according to Hebrews 11, were given the eyes of faith that could look clearly at the realities that were in front of them. Option one, obey the king, worship his God, and offend Yahweh, their God. Option two, disobey the king, worship Yahweh unto death, knowing that they have nothing to lose and everything to gain at death. For these men, option one was not even an option. Why would they be willing to offend Yahweh in order to save their earthly lives? Do you see how clearly they're seeing the situation? Option one does not even make sense in light of eternity. If God has promised that unending joy awaits believers after death, then death is gain, no matter what kind of death it is. And if God sovereignly chooses to allow the method here of death by fire, so be it, because gain awaits. Well, as you can imagine, this does not sit very well with a man who is not used to people standing up to him. Everyone else bowed the knee, right? Only three men had the courage to tell him no to his face. Look at verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now that phrase, seven times more, is just a way of saying that it was heated to its maximum intensity. Couldn't have gotten any hotter. Sadly, the furnace is so hot now that even the strongest soldiers in Nebuchadnezzar's army who are tasked to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up and throw them in the fire, when they do that, they die because of the heat. That's how hot it was. So here we come to the climax of the story. Will the God of these Israelite men deliver them or not? Will King Nebuchadnezzar's prediction come true? That there's no God that can stop him, including Israel's God? Well, let's see together what happens next. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. To the king's surprise, instead of turning into balls of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are unharmed by the fire, which is a miracle in and of itself, right? But beyond that, they have been joined by a fourth person who's also unhurt by the fire. Now, before we jump to conclusions about who this person is, we need to know that Christian interpreters have disagreed over the centuries as to who it is. Some believe it's an angel sent from God. Others believe it's an appearance of Jesus Christ 
before he came as a human 500 years later. Now, I'm sympathetic to the second argument for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is that this is not the only place in the Old Testament where we see an appearance of a heavenly being who appears to be divine and not just angelic. In fact, that's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar says. He, he thinks this is a god or a son of the gods. But I don't think that we have to decide here with utter certainty whether this person is in the fire is an angel or whether it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I don't think we have to make that decision in order to hear the central message of Daniel chapter 3. The message here in this, in this chapter is first and foremost this. God delivers his people when trials attempt to destroy them. Let me say that again. God delivers his people when trials attempt to destroy them. And if God saw fit to make his presence known by sending an angel or by sending his son to stand in the fire with these three men, the point is that he made his presence known. He was there. He was present. He wasn't somewhere else. He was present to help them. So I think it's safe to say that whoever is actually physically in the fire with them, Daniel, who's the author of this chapter, is telling his audience not only that God delivers his people when trials attempt to destroy them, but God does this by being present with them in their trial. Therefore, the main point of this chapter is God stands with his people and delivers them when trials attempt to destroy them. Let me say that again. God stands with his people and delivers them when trials attempt to destroy them. Notice how this chapter ends. It ends in worship. But not from the lips of the Hebrews. Verse 28, this is King Nebuchadnezzar talking. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar starts the chapter insisting that others worship him and his god. He ends the chapter worshiping Yahweh, the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what are we supposed to do with this story? How do we apply this to our lives? What difference should it make as we go into our daily routines tomorrow? Let's think about this for a minute. Stories in the Bible, like this one, invite us into them. And they invite us to see ourselves in the story itself, but also to see ourselves in the bigger story that the Bible is telling. So let me start with this question. Where do you see yourself in this story? Do you see yourself as one of the three faithful Hebrews Or do you identify with the evil king Nebuchadnezzar? Now I think that we should not so quickly jump to identify with the three Hebrew men. In fact, in most of the Bible's stories, we should not see ourselves first as the one who's portrayed as the faithful one. So how are we similar to King Nebuchadnezzar? After all, most of us in the room, I don't think, have an entire empire at our disposal. This is how we're similar to King Nebuchadnezzar. If we look underneath what's on the outside, we're all sinners 
who seek glory as a result of our own pride. We all deal with this. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we delight in ourselves and we think highly of ourselves. This leads us to exalt ourselves in our own thoughts and seek the praise of others. And we end up worshiping ourselves and expecting others to do the same. This comes to the surface in our lives when we go around boasting about ourselves to other people. Sometimes in very public ways and then other times in very overt ways. Let me explain. All of us can spot pride in those who walk around talking about themselves and their accomplishments and their possessions. And I think it's probably safe to say that most often society in general despises this kind of person who's boastful. But what we're often not aware of is how we, how we like to impress others not by what we have done, as the boastful person does, but by what we've had to endure. There's a word for this, and it's called self-pity. We attempt to get people to be amazed at us because we've suffered so much. This is so subtle, but it's still a form of deadly pride, and it shows up in our hearts more than we'd like to admit. So while most of us don't walk around publicly boasting as King Nebuchadnezzar did, I would venture to guess that most of us, if we honestly observe what's happening in our hearts, would be willing to admit that we often attempt to impress others with our resilience and our perseverance by sharing how difficult things are and how busy we are and how bad things are at work and how many awful things have happened to us in life. So before we look down on King Nebuchadnezzar and call him the villain in this story who obviously is not as enlightened as we are, we need to stop and ask ourselves, how often do we seek to self-promote either through boasting or self-pity? And how many times do we throw tantrums like King Nebuchadnezzar did and make threats when others don't do what we want them to do? After all, can't they see how important we are? So let's start by admitting that pride has a hold on us just like it did for King Nebuchadnezzar. And pride has led us to seek our own glory. In fact, to compete with God for his glory. This is exactly what Satan did, what, ne- what Nebuchadnezzar did, and what we do, and it is sin. So let's start off looking at this story and admitting that we deserve the fiery furnace, but not Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. We deserve a much worse furnace, the furnace of hell the worst fiery furnace anyone could ever imagine. It would put Nebuchadnezzar's furnace to shame. This is a furnace that will never stop producing heat. It's reserved for all humans and angels who fail to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But wait a minute. Does that mean that God is like Nebuchadnezzar? Is he demanding worship and threatening us with hell if we don't? It's a good question. On the surface, you might say, yes, God expects us to worship him, and if we don't, we will go to hell. But this completely leaves out the gospel. Is it God's desire to send people to hell for not worshiping him? Or has he made a way out? Let's take a moment to see how Nebuchadnezzar measures up 
to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is a king. He was born a king. He never existed as a time in the universe when he was not king. And as king, when he came to earth, we see him delighting infinitely in his father. He was not stuck gazing inwardly at himself like Nebuchadnezzar was. From all of eternity, the Son of God delighted in another person, namely his precious Father. Jesus, instead of forcing his way on us, like Nebuchadnezzar tried to do, sacrificially humbled himself so he can stand in our place to deliver us. Instead of demanding his own way and his own will to be done, Jesus comes submitting himself to the Father's will. And instead of boasting like Nebuchadnezzar did, he waited on his Father to vindicate him in the eyes of others. And what was the result? This resulted in the greatest display of God's delivering power and the most glory, not just for Jesus, but also the Father and the Spirit. What does that mean for us? It means first that we have the privilege to stand in awe of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and to worship him, which is what we were trying to do this morning through communion and through the songs. Second thing is we get to join Christ and follow in his footsteps. He is our model of faithfulness in the midst of trial. He's our model before we even really consider the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, he is who they were pointing toward with their faithfulness. So now if we're in Christ, when we encounter problems and trials and assaults and suffering of any kind or pain from the sin of others, we respond in an entirely different way than the world. We're looking to Christ and asking how does he respond? So if we experience a life-altering illness, a broken relationship that keeps getting worse, an impossibly difficult job situation, the loss of a close friend or family member, abuse of any kind, verbal, sexual, financial, emotional, spiritual, or disappointments, like failing, failing to get on the sport team you wanted to get on, or to be able to do that play performance you hoped to be accepted for. When these things happen to us, these trials that come into our lives, we're called to a distinct response. So what is that response? Well, we do what Jesus did. First, we turn our eyes upon Jesus and we delight in him, especially what he did for us on the cross for our evil deeds. So we don't get infatuated with ourselves. We look to Jesus. Secondly, we humble ourselves. For us, that looks like being willing to receive help from others to carry our burdens. It's okay to get counseling. Did you know that? There's no shame in admitting you need outside help. It's okay. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask for prayer or meals or conversation. 
as we humble ourselves, we also need to be willing to help carry each other's burdens like Christ did for us. The third thing we do when trials come is we submit to the Father's will and trust instead of boasting. We pray along with Jesus, not my will be done. And we accept the long, rough road of suffering as coming from his hand. The same loving hand that was pierced through for our sins. And we cling to Jesus like a child. A child that doesn't know how to swim, who holds on to their parent in a pool that's too deep for them. Fourth and last, when we encounter trials, we hope in the final vindication when Jesus makes everything right one day in the future. And because we hope in that, we can forgive and let Jesus decide how he's going to deal with the person who sinned against us. We can let go of bitterness. We can let go of defending our reputations or insisting that everything be worked out now. And in the end, responding this way is an act of worship, just like it was for the three Hebrews in our story. We long to stay faithful and worship only Jesus. So we repent and we turn, from, we turn away from this urge to self-promote, either through boasting or, or self-pity. We resist the urge to cave when we experience outside pressure from the world when they want us to worship what they worship. And we do this because we are connected to Jesus Christ who perfectly obeyed his Father and yet still lost his life. In this sense, we can now identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we've seen that we can worship Jesus for how he's different than Nebuchadnezzar, and we've seen that we have a model in him to follow when we encounter trials. But what about your circumstances right now? The things you're dealing with, the fiery trials that are threatening you, threatening your faith, maybe even threatening your life. Does this story speak at all to the way that God steps in and stands with us in our trials? I think it does. So let's ask the question, how does Jesus come and stand with us today? Should we expect a supernatural visit from him physically? Probably not. So it might be helpful for us to state what it doesn't mean for Jesus to come and stand with us in our trials, and then we'll state what it does mean. So first of all, Jesus, when he comes to stand with us in our trials, it it doesn't mean that our trials are going to stop happening or that they're going to go away. It does not mean that they will get easier. It does not mean that they're going to be less painful. It does not mean that you will physically survive the trial. For example, you might get cancer and it might kill you. Having Jesus stand with us in our trials doesn't mean the trial will make sense or that when the trial is over in this life that all the damage done will be nicely accounted for and justice served in this life. Having Jesus stand with us does not mean he will make everyone understand what you're going through and be helpful to you during your trial. 
or that he will keep everyone you know from abandoning you. Lastly, having Jesus stand with us in our trials does not mean that we can just press pause on dealing with our own sin issues during the trial and begin pointing the finger only at other people and their sins. So what does it mean? What does it mean to have Jesus stand with us in our trials? It means first and foremost that Jesus stood with us and for us at the cross and took our punishment and that he arose to stand and intercede for us based on his innocent life and he's still doing that today. Before we ever talk about the trial, we should think about what he went through on the cross and how he stood for us. What does it mean to have Jesus stand with us? It means that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. It means that he will uphold our faith. He'll keep us believing in him, though at times our faith will appear almost imperceptible. It means that he will send people our way to help us. It means that he perfectly understands the pain we are going through and is in fact experiencing it with us somehow. We don't understand how. The Bible tells us that we're already joined to him now. And he reminds us that he suffered horrific trials. So he knows personally what we're going through. He knows how hard it is. He's a human. It means he will use this trial to shape you into the person he's making you, which is a beloved child moving more and more into the image of Christ. Having Jesus in our trial, having him come and stand with us, means that when he he does that, he comes to us and he gives us incredible hope by making all kinds of promises to us. If we'll just keep believing and trusting him, not giving into the world's temptations. For example, he has promised that one day he will set everything right. All the scales will be balanced, justice will be served to every single situation and wrongful deed. He's promised that he will welcome us home with a well done, good and faithful servant. He's promised that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes that we will get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, that we will be given a crown of life and not be hurt by the second death, that we will be given authority over the nations, and that we will be, we will be clothed in white garments and our names will never be taken out of the book of life. Aren't Jesus' promises sweet in the middle of the trial that we're in? Having Jesus stand with us means that he reminds us that he is literally ready to meet us on the other side of death's door. Do you realize that's how close you are to meeting Jesus? A fragile door with a way. You are so close. You are so close to finally being home with him forever. And death does not need to be a fearful thing for believers. Rather, it's the doorway through which we all must go into the very presence of Jesus 
Jesus is ready to meet us in our trial and to stand with us. So let's go to him. Don't be reluctant to run to him. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, it's always, it's always your calling if you're a believer to worship Jesus alone. And you can do that when trials surround you and when they threaten you because you know that God's going to stand with you to protect you and deliver you through them. Now, if you're in this room and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, you, you don't know what it is to like to have Jesus stand for you in your trial. My plea is really simple. You see, you don't have to face the fire of hell due to your sin. The sin of worshiping yourself or something else besides God. Jesus offers you a way out through what he did on the cross. He stood in your place. Taking sin on his shoulders, he took the punishment for sin that we all deserve. And for all who will repent and turn to him, he will receive them just as they are. Don't live your life apart from him, attempting to deal with your own sins in your own way, trying to earn your way back to God, or like Nebuchadnezzar, pretending that you are God. Let Jesus stand with you, first by accepting what he did on the cross for you, and then letting him help you through whatever fiery trial you find yourself in today. Let's pray.